Thank you all. Um, so great to be here. Uh, really an honor. This is my first time um, on your campus here at Asbury, though I have been hearing about this place um, for so many years, and I am proud to say it does not disappoint. You all have landed uh, in a really phenomenal place. The Celts talk about thin places on the earth where the veil or that separation, whatever it is that separates heaven from earth, seems to be worn thin in certain places, and I suspect maybe you all have found your place in um, exactly such a place as that. It, the air feels thin, um, a little bit more heavenly, maybe even um, in these hills. So thank you, God, for all the good things that he's doing in Asbury. Um, thank you, Lord, for this tie that binds us together and the topic of our conversation. I think it's a really important one and a timely one, as Winfield has pointed out. I'm going to begin, before we get into our time in the Word, doing something similar that Winfield did yesterday, which is explain a little bit about my own engagement with this idea of convergence or three streams and how I ended up doing what I'm doing, where I'm doing it. Uh, my story started, at least my church story, started in Arkansas, which is where I'm from. I grew up in a very, very rural town. Rural is what we like to say rather than village, but the truth is I grew up in a village in um, northern Arkansas, right on the Missouri border. And um, we don't have stores where I'm from. There are no restaurants, no stoplights. Um, I grew up on a party line. Does anyone in Kentucky, in the great state of Kentucky, know about party line? Thanks be to God. That means we shared line, a phone line, literally, as a party, um, up until I was in middle school and even to high school. So I, a village is where I'm from. <laughs> no stores, no stoplights. But we had churches as you might also assume, a number of them. And my family and I um, went to the first, the first Baptist church uh, there in the center of our town uh, growing up, which means that I grew up a Baptist. I was raised on uh, Sunday school felt boards and altar calls and vacation Bible school every summer of my entire life growing up. I spent every summer parading through the church, processing with the Christian flag and carrying the largest KJV Bible you've ever seen <laughs> in your entire life. I was too big, literally, for my little arms to, to carry all by myself, um, and I would march that thing proudly right up to the front of the church, and we would pledge allegiance to these things um, every summer of my childhood growing up. We thumped our Bibles every Sunday, not literally, actually, um, but we, maybe, we pounded them, certainly, right? That The good old, like, Southern Baptist fiery preaching, I heard Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and again on Wednesday nights for Bible study. I loved that stuff. I loved those people. Every day, every Sunday anyway, after church, we would hold hands and stretch across the sanctuary and we would sing a song probably some of you know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, which I could still sing every word to you because I've been singing it all my life. And I would hold these people's hand, many of whom I probably had very little in common with, and yet I loved them. They were family. I loved that place. Those people taught me how to pray. They taught me what it meant to love the Bible, to memorize the Bible. Sword drills. Did anybody in this room grow up doing sword drills? Mm. To this day, there's nothing I'd rather do than have a good old-fashioned sword drill. <laughs> you, come, you come to my house for a good time, and if it were up to me, we'd just bust those Bibles out, man, and have sword drills. I loved that Stuff. They taught me what it meant to send money to Lottie Moon, to give to people in far and distant places because God was there with them just as God was here with us. These people, in short, 
baptized me in the waters that are evangelicalism, and I am eternally grateful to them for that. In the very small place where I grew up, because it was so small, you obviously are going to bump into people who attend these other churches, right? People I would later know to, be, to refer to as charismatic Christians. I'll never forget in middle school, we went on a retreat. And anytime you go on a retreat, which just means we get to get out of town, uh, everybody goes, whether you're Christian or not. And nobody cares if it's the Church of Christ retreat or the Methodist retreat or the Baptist retreat. Everybody's going because we're just retreating from home. <laughs> so <laughs> we, went on this, we went on a fasting retreat, actually, as a, as a middle school kid. And we invited some folks who came up from Little Rock, the great thriving metropolis of Little Rock. And they brought with them their Pentecostalism. Right, which I had had very little exposure to at this time. And this was a fasting retreat, so I remember about two days in when I was, I felt like anyway, on the point of maybe literal starvation and despair. And, you know, depriving a, a middle school student of food for 72 hours is probably not the smartest idea that anyone has ever had. And yet, let alone like 30 of them, that's exactly what happened. We were very cranky. And I remember, though, because of the level of my own misery, looking at these people who had come from Little Rock, these so-called Pentecostals, with these smiles on their faces. And I remember they called me sugar and baby and hun. And they'd, you know, hug me. And they would kneel when they prayed and put their arms up like this. And when we sang songs, as they always did, every night they sang us to sleep with their hands in the air. And I overheard them telling stories about dreams that they had had and about hearing from Jesus. And to hear them talk, it almost sounded as if they believed that maybe Jesus was actually on the retreat with us. The bizarre idea. <laughs> He might actually be here to say something. And I retreating, I thought this was just to make me miserable, this 72 hours of no food. And yet they believed that maybe Jesus would be there to do a thing. It's like these people were on fire, you might say. They owned what it meant to be, in every honorable sense of the word, a Pentecostal, a person of Pentecost, someone on fire with the presence and glory of Jesus. And I was proud to be taught by them. I learned over the years a lot about what it meant, therefore, to be evangelical, what it meant to be charismatic. But where I grew up was a liturgical desert. The only thing I knew, for example, about Catholics was that I ought to be very proud not to be one. And I'm not happy to say that, but that is true. That is, whether to, as Marty said yesterday, implicitly or explicitly, that was the sentiment. We were very thankful. So the only thing I knew about Catholics was what I saw in the movies, right? They wear these funny outfits, these dresses. They pray to Mary. They do this strange thing. When I got to college, I found out, like, not drink during a season known as Lent. Strange and mysterious time, stretch of time in the spring. <laughs> they confess their sins, worst of all, to a priest. Almost as if, you know, owning your sin in the presence of another person. What a strange thing to do. When I was in my 20s, my early 20s, after several years in ministry at that point, I felt something inside of me start to crack. Many of you, if you've been in ministry for any amount of time, as many of you in this room have been, 
you probably have felt something similar, and I suspect that many of your journeys thus far would be trekking with me almost on point, because as Winfield said yesterday, this really isn't um, a, a, maybe a, a new or an exceptional thing that's happening. My journey is not all that unique. Probably many of you in this room share a version of it. I should also mention, I went through a really dramatic John Piper phase. <laughs> I say dramatic because there's no other way to describe it. <laughs> it was very intense. So if you would like to do sword drills and talk about our desire for the glory of God, I'm there with you, my friend, any time, any day of the week. But something was cracking. I was tired. I not just, I've been to too many conferences tired, but that like soul weary tired. I felt the life going out of me. I was, as Jesus says, not exactly losing my faith, but I had or was losing my heart. Whatever it was that had brought me to this thing, this calling, this compulsion that I felt was dying, a kind of slow and really tragic death. All the words felt hollow. I spell this out for you because you need to know the symptoms of losing heart. Jesus apparently feels like it's a big deal for us not to do this. When the words start to feel hollow to you, they don't arrest you or captivate you anymore. You need to pay attention. When you find yourself saying the name of Jesus as infrequently as possible, lest someone assume something about you that you're not proud of, be careful. When you find yourself being distracted through an entire worship set, having never engaged with the things that you are the entire time professing to believe in the hearing of many other people, what if we had to sing, as an aside, all these songs solo at the front, almost as a testimony? We'd probably consider them differently. And what occurred to me is that I was like mouthing them, pant like a pantomime, but they felt and meant nothing to me. And so one summer, I did a senseless and strange thing. I decided I don't even know, honestly, how I knew what an Anglican was or what an Anglican church might be, but I decided to Google <laughs> Anglican churches in Little Rock. Thanks be to God for our patron, St. Google, who probably is responsible <laughs> for so many of the people in our churches, right? So I Google Anglican churches, and I end up attending my first Anglican worship service in Little Rock, Arkansas, at a church planted by a man, T.J. Johnston, who was supposed to be here. So that church was planted by him, and he would later become my bishop. I knew none of that at the time. So I stepped into this church, with all these people wearing those same silly costumes that I had seen in other settings. And far from it being the sort of dull drudgery that I had come to expect, these people were, as we've heard a number of people give testimony to, filled with the Spirit of God. They were kind. They smiled at me. They were so happy that I was there. And through that service, we held our prayer books. I prayed prayers that were written for me to pray. 
And for the first time, because I could see the words written out, and I didn't have to muster up language for myself, because had I had to do so, the only thing I had to say before God is, I don't feel like doing this. That was the truest sentiment I could muster. And yet these people put prayers into my hands so that I could say language. I could give voice to things that I still believed but no longer knew how to express. Then they invited me to the table. And Jesus fed me from the table. And I was reminded, because they do communion every single week, and so thanks be to God happened to be inviting me to the table on that particular Sunday. I was reminded through the power of sacrament that I cannot and will never be able to feed myself or revive my own heart. My heart belongs to Jesus. I gave it to him a long time ago. Something was missing, and it wasn't him. But maybe it was my engagement with my faith. And so I did my first sort of splashing in the waters of the stream that I would come to hear called the liturgical stream. And I've been an Anglican ever since. It was a kind of baptism Sunday for me. I didn't just want to splash around. I wanted to dive in deep. I'm a Baptist, like a little... (laughs) I would like to be baptized in the water that is Anglicanism, right? If I'm going to go in, I'm going all the way in. I was so thankful for that. This text that we read this morning, Jesus begins telling this story by saying, I'm going to tell you a story so that you remember to pray always and not to lose heart. Liturgy, that day for me, reminded me what it meant to pray always, regardless of how I felt or the mood that I was in, but that my responsibility as a Christian was to pray always, and that in the praying, lo and behold, not just out of a sort of mindless act of obedience, and not just because Jesus demands that obedience, because he can. He insists that we pray always, not just to make us obey, but because he knows that in the praying, That's where we regain our heart. As I stand to pray, and in praying always, I resuscitate, revive, and maintain my heart. He's brilliant that way. So he tells this story about a widow and a judge. We don't know what has happened to this woman, but some injustice has befallen her, apparently very serious, because women in the ancient Middle East did not, for any reason, appear in court or testify in front of judges, not if you wanted to win your case. You would have a man do it for you, someone who had rights, someone who had a voice. You would have them champion your cause. They would be your advocate. And yet, for whatever reason, we're not told. We know this woman's husband has died, And we're left to assume that either her other male relatives have also died or they've abandoned her for whatever reason. They're not there. And so she has a decision to make. She can either accept that she is now, as a result, voiceless. And because she's voiceless, she has no hope. She's hopeless. She can just surrender her justice, her life, her future, into the inevitability of a broken system. Why bother? 
or she can do what she decides to do, rather miraculously. She can decide to make a petition, to speak, to use her voice, to challenge an adversary that would have her believe that she's defeated already, to challenge a system that was devised and designed against her to keep her voiceless. And she makes the decision to do the latter. To not just speak, but apparently to speak with a kind of determination and a ferocity that wears this judge out eventually. The language that he says when he finally relents is effectively, dear God, somebody give this woman whatever she wants. Because if I don't give her what she wants, she's eventually going to wear me out with her coming. In the Greek, that phrase, wear me out, would have for Jesus' audience reminded them of an image from the boxing world akin to if someone were jabbing relentlessly someone in the face over and over and over. This is how this man describes his interactions with this woman, who's not only decided not to be silent and thus not to die, but to be bold in her petition, to fight her way into life, to being seen and being heard. And the craziest thing happens. As she fights, as she makes her petition, using her voice, not her fist, what she does is the most brilliant thing. Because effectively, she's channeling all that hurt and all that pain. I mean, think about it. This was a woman who had presumably lost not just her husband, but many members of her family, and then been the victim of Injustice with no recourse. She was a woman grief-stricken, angry, and alone. And she determines to use all of those feelings, and rather than to have them operate against her, through her petition, she redirects them for the sake of redemption, hope, and a future. She transforms through her petition her weakness into strength. And Jesus says, when you pray, you pray like this. This is what prayer is like. You take all that that you're feeling, all that hopelessness, that voicelessness, that frustration, that anger, that pain. You take all that, and rather than allowing your adversary to use it to render you voiceless and lifeless, you stand up and you pray. And when you pray, you have a voice. And not just any voice. When we stand to pray, when we do liturgy, we do the work of the people. That's true. But what fascinates me about what happened to me on that Sunday when I visited this Anglican parish was not that I felt like I was doing work. It was that. And yet, mysteriously, it was, as, it was as if in standing to pray, I was also joining the work of the Holy Spirit that he had already been doing and was now doing through me. This work of the people is an opportunity, this liturgy that we do for us to participate, to join with the Holy Spirit in doing work on your behalf, 
but also on behalf of all of those around you, so you stand up and pray. We stand up and we pray. We are the people of God. Paul says, you are servants of Jesus Christ. And my most favorite way of thinking about my own ministry, he says, you are stewards of the mysteries of God. When you come to church, either as a lay person or as clergy, when we do this work, each and every one of us using our own gift as God has given it to us, we do the work of the people of God. We preach. We make our petition. We heal the sick. We invite people to the table and into the waters of baptism. We invite people to be healed and to receive the fire of the Holy Spirit so that when other people encounter them, they would say, seems as if they have been with Jesus. You and I become thin places. And we do that because of this liturgy, this work that the Holy Spirit has invited us into and then because of his graciousness committed to doing through us. Liturgy is there for you, as is Jesus. Because there will be days when you cannot carry yourself in this ministry and in this work that we do. And you will need Jesus to carry you. And so he will graciously put words, living words, active words, into your mouth to say and then he will invite you to his table and he will give you bread and wine to sustain you, to strengthen you, so that you can live. This liturgy is life-giving and therefore it is empowering. We do this not because we have so much to say necessarily. I do this because there may come a day when I run out of things to say, and yet the word of God will never. His word is not changed. It's living and active now, today, forever, and always. And when I have nothing to say, he will say it through me and through you. You are stewards of the mystery of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's stand together if we're able.